There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. If you're going to go full Canadian, you have to constantly apologize. Yeah, we're like sorry he says about up that. here. <laughs> I'm so sorry about that. But right away, I put my hand right over the hole. Clients had no idea. They had no idea what just happened. You could probably get away with living in your friend's driveway longer because he can just tell the neighbors, like, yeah, it's my buddy's boat. Do I blur the naughty bits on the back of the spoon? Do I let it ride? I haven't really decided yet. Good morning, degenerate anglers, and welcome to Bend, the fishing podcast that once tried to patch a pair of waders with big league chew and trailer bearing grease. I'm Joe Cermelli. <laughs> and I'm Hayden Samak, and <laughs> I was more of a bubble tape man myself. Oh, that's good. That's good. There's nothing wrong with bubble tape. How about razzles? You ever have a razzle? It's candy, then it's gum. Razzles? No. No. <laughs> you never had a razzle? No. When you come out here, when you come back out here, I'm buying you some razzles. Um, <laughs> Anybody who's had a razzle, you you were you were sure each time it just wasn't going to become gum. Like you're just about to swallow, and then suddenly it was gum. Total mind freak. Anyway, who cares about razzles? Uh, what's shaking this week? We've got kind of a boat theme going on here. We've got a, a sort of near-death experience on a boat, and then we've got a boat that cheats death. It comes back from the dead, but is reincarnated. Um, and isn't really a boat anymore, which which like a beats phoenix the more, from the ashes. Yeah, like, <laughs> exactly. Uh, which beats the more common alternative of, of talking about restoring a boat for ten years while it just disintegrates uh, in the backyard. You just you just got to let those go. Sometimes you know you just got to give it up. Just let it go, man. Tell yeah. your wife she was right and take the L. <laughs> well, though surprisingly, the reincarnation of this boat could be more appealing to the missus. We'll see. Uh, we'll see how that goes. Uh, anyway, so uh, before we move on here, man, what's shaking? What's shaking on the west side? Anything good? How you doing? Uh, you know, uh, big game just kind of wrapped up here not too mm -hmm. long ago. So I'm kind of going through like that reorganization process and, you know, my closet and all my gear and getting all that shit squared away so that means um i'm cutting up an elk can no longer be your excuse when i call and you can't take the call uh, i got like four mule deer quarters in the freezer right now <laughs> i'm gonna have to deal with it some later point <laughs> Fair. um you know a lot of the trout water out here fish is great all uh sure all winter long so i'm really looking forward to some winter fishing uh let's see i'm really 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 looking if it gets cold enough i'm really looking forward to uh, some hard water, and you're not going to believe this, but one of my best buddies around here is our HR person, uh, Christine. And ah. see, I thought you'd be more surprised that like I had a buddy in HR. I thought that well, would be a, like that's uh, a power move at any company. You want to be friends with the HR people. <laughs> I, Good I, for I just you. figured with like the shit that's that just we business say, 101. <laughs> boy, I, I just figured with the shit that we say, you'd be surprised that an HR person took a shine to me. Uh, but anyhow, Christine's from Michigan and she's real into ice fishing. So we've been scheming, uh, to hit it hard this year if it ever gets cold enough. Yeah. Well, I know it's been, it's been kind of abnormally warm out there, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, anyway. Uh, speaking of ice fishing, you mentioned the other day that our friends at 13 Fishing, our friends and sponsors, they, they actually did get you that care package we talked about, right? Uh, yeah, man. They, uh, one of our listeners wrote in the other day saying that there's a lot of yeah, man in these episodes. <laughs> so she, yeah, I, man, there is, I forget who it is, but shout out to you guy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> anyhow, you said something about, uh, getting me some gear a couple weeks ago. And sure enough, the other day, a couple mysterious boxes appeared on my doorstep full of ice fishing gear. And I mm-hmm. could not be more excited to get out there and use it. Yeah, yeah, the 13 guys are great. Uh, what'd you dudes. get? What's your, what's your favorite thing? What, what, what was in the box? Tell uh, me what was in the box that was your favorite what's thing. What's in the box? What's in the uh, box? Oh. <laughs> Phil, drop that, please. <laughs> uh, what's in the box? Take, me what's gun. in the box? Give me the gun. Well, they sent me a uh, a couple like rod and reel setups, and then I'm pretty sure every single finesse bait <laughs> they offer. Uh, <laughs> like, literally, literally, like... Every single one that they offer. Uh, I, I just love the look of that flashbang, though. Uh, uh-huh. It's just, like, fishy. So I like those. Yep. Uh, they also sent some of those free fall omen combos. And uh-huh. who knows, man? Like, I, I might even trick some folks into thinking I know what I'm doing with all this gear. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, yeah. I, as if I wasn't already looking forward to hard water now, I'm really looking forward yeah. to hard water. Uh, yeah. What have you been up to? Yeah. A uh, little trout, little steel. Uh, brown trout have been pretty randy nice. on a few of the local rivers, and um, just got back from the Niagara River. Ooh. One of my favorite places to fish, and and we 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 messed up the lake trout pretty good, and had a nice little, I'd say, a smattering of steel. I could have mm-hmm. used more steel, but they were just being finicky because of the conditions. So yeah. I'm happy to have just gotten a few um, in the tough conditions. But yeah, man, I know you are headed back east soon, and I'm I, we've we've talked about it behind the scenes and now publicly. Like, we should get out together and float for those browns while you're home. Yeah, man. You know I'd love to do that. Yeah, I could I, I could totally see that happening. I'll bring the uh, I'll bring the streamers and rods and stuff, and you, you just, you know, bring whatever special items you need for fishing. You're going to be doing a lot of doobie rolling when you're living in a van down by the river. I am not high. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know, but I can't help it. It's a thing now. It's just funny. Um, anyhow, if, like, if we get together to float, uh, I will say, it will be in the comfort of my trusty clacker craft, which is, of course, a hard drift boat. Uh, I, I see what you're doing. <laughs> yep. Now, if you, let's just say, hypothetically, you're on the fence about buying a raft or a hard boat uh, for all your floating needs. We've got a smooth move for you this week with a colleague of ours that just might sway you toward that fiberglass. Why did you do that? Why? Why did you do that, Terry? Oh, my God. All right, Joe. So we got another one of my friends from uh, the meat eater office in here. Uh, he's currently our, uh, what, what are you, social media manager or communications coordinator? What is it? The latter. The communications latter. Communications coordinator. coordinator. We got the communications coordinator in here with us, uh, Corey Calkins, former fly guide as well, man. How are you? I'm good. How are you guys doing today? I think this is terrific because, again, like I work with Corey too, but mostly through email. So having you out there and the, like, we're finding out that all these people have these great fishy stories and we're guides and stuff. It's terrific. Oh, yeah. I mean, like so much of the meat eater office really is made up of folks who just live this shit in like a big way you know what i mean where were you guiding mostly man started out up in northwest montana yeah in the bob marshall wilderness for half my career and then the last seven eight years down here in bozeman so you got it in the northwest corner so is that like the kootenai drainage i've only ever been up there once not that far northwest uh the flathead drainages Okay, gotcha. All right, mm-hmm. sounds good. Okay, so that's, um, I feel like that's kind of the part of Montana that not as many people go to. I'm sure you've seen much more, many more crowds on the water when you switch to guiding out of Bozeman than that part of the state, right? Yeah, true. It's uh, it's still a little bit of a secret. There's some secret streams and corners up there, yeah. but there's not many secrets left anymore. Yeah. Well, I didn't, I didn't just spoil anything because Kootenai's a pretty damn big river that's very hard to fish on foot, if I'm not mistaken. So that was not a burn, correct? Not at all. So Corey is with us this uh, this morning to uh, to to give us one of his smoothest moves, man. And this one, actually, Joe, it does not come from a mega sport or or a client. 
It comes from uh, from our man Corey himself. Oh. Yeah, this was a very smooth move on and terrible act on my part. <laughs> very which dumb. part of the state? Which part of Montana is this smooth move coming from? The Northwest or the Bozeman area? The Northwest. Okay. On one of the famed flathead drainages. Yeah. So so lay it on us, man, because I know Hayden knows this story, but I don't. I have no idea what's coming, so I am very excited. So there's this one stretch of river that we float that you have to pack your raft down this really steep hill. It's a quarter mile. takes about four trips. You roll your raft up, put it on a pack frame, pack it down the hill, go back up, which is the worst part, just going back up the hill. Yeah. Take your frame down which is extremely awkward. Corners of the frame, raft frame, bouncing all the way down. Go back up one more time for your gear. When you're at the bottom, pump up your boat. It's a long process to get a boat in the water on this stretch. It's really, it takes a couple hours. You want to try and be there before your clients and then somebody drives your clients there. Right. If you have the energy, you walk back up the hill, walk your clients down because it's kind of a treacherous trail getting down. So we're, I don't know, 11 a.m., a third of the way through our trip, catching plenty of cutthroat. And I think a client got tangled up something. I had to drop anchor. So I dropped the anchor in a not very good spot. Water was a little fast. Yeah. And hopefully other people can learn from this one. I'm sure it's happened to many folks. But I dropped the anchor in between some slab rocks. Finish untying this knot. We're ready to go. Go to pull the anchor up. It's stuck. Very stuck. Right. Yeah. Wedged, jammed. Yeah, yeah. I've been here and it sucks. Yes. Ask the client in the back to do what he can in the back to pull on that thing. He can't get it. He's about mm-hmm. to snap the collapsible chair in half trying to yank on this yeah. anchor rope. I'm back there with him trying to like hold him up and pull the anchor rope at the same time. I actually asked the kid <laughs> in the front to row as hard as he can upstream and while I pull on the anchor rope. It was a debacle. Right. I'm, sh- yeah. I'm sure we were stuck there for 15 minutes trying to get this thing unstuck. Yeah. It came to the conclusion that anchor's staying right there, and yep. I better cut the rope. Yep. I don't want to just leave the rope, right. which maybe would have been smart because the rope would have left a you know, place to come look yeah. later, the candy cane blue and white long anchor rope. Yeah. <laughs> so I decide to cut the rope. So I break out my pocket knife and brilliantly cut down on the rope. Oh, no. And I slice right through that rope. It's a very sharp knife. Yep. And punctured oh, no. the raft. Brand new raft. This was the second voyage for this raft. 14-foot <laughs> NRS otter. Oh, no. So I sliced down instantly. <laughs> but right away, I put, oh, my, I put my hand gosh. right over the hole. <laughs> Clients had no idea. <laughs> they had no idea what just happened. So my hand's on this hole. My hand's shaking because so much air is trying to come out. And I row us down about another quarter mile with one hand on the oars, (laughs) the other hand on this little slit, three-inch slit in the brand-new otter. And I just go, guys, I think it's lunchtime. (laughs) So we go down to this spot, pull over. At this point, the whole back end of the boat's drooping pretty bad. Like the guy in the back. Have they still not said anything? Like, do they still not know what's going on even when they they were back? They were fishing still. I mean, I'm rowing out <laughs> oh, one man. hand. So it's just like the total obliviousness. Yeah, they're fishing. Right? No clue. <laughs> I just really like crab strokes, man. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it, was, it was awkward rowing. Luckily, it was an easy spot. In fact, I'm pretty sure they caught a couple fish between the knife incident and Even where better. we pulled over. Right. Yeah, it's pretty silly fishing back there. So we pull over, do lunch, and luckily I had a patch kit with me and had never actually had to put this to work, but knew exactly how to patch that boat. Got her all patched up. Pumped it back up. They had lunch. We continued on our day. They had no idea that it ever happened. That is like a smooth move in more way than one. It's the smoothest kind of move because that's what a good guide does. Like the best guide. It's like like an airline pilot. Mm -hmm. Like you could be like crashing. But like the good guy, like you will still be eating your complimentary, you know, pretzels and not have any clue. Like like unless you're like death is imminent. Like, the good ones know how to just keep that under wraps, man. And there's so many great captain stories like that where same deal. Like, some catastrophic shit or potentially catastrophic shit is happening right now. But as long as the clients don't know, like, you are doing your job. So that is the smoothest kind of smooth move. The recovery was smoother than the incident. Yeah. It has everything a good smooth move has, man. It has, like, you know, a colossal f*** up. 
which is like funny. And then it, 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 and right, like you said, it has that perfect, just like, yep, airline captain quality poise. Well, I also think we can all identify, Corey, with 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 slicing the boat because it's one of those things that in your head you're like, I would never do that. Like that will never happen to me. Like I would always ha- like know not to have the sharp objects going down into the raft because I ran a raft for years before I got a hard boat, right? And I I was like so I didn't trust other people with hooks and things, right? But I trusted myself, and I was like, I know how to make sure I don't pop this. So it's just one of those things that's like you never think that's going to happen until it does. Like, oh, And I'm sure true. that was a split second of cutting, and you were just like, cannot f***ing believe I just did that right now. I was so frustrated that I couldn't get the anchor up. I mean, I've yeah. gotten it wedged many times. This is probably my fifth year guiding, and we could not get that thing up. It was driving me crazy. It was, you know, the pyramid anchor, yeah. and it was yeah. so rounded over. It wasn't sharp anymore. And I could not get it up, so I was like, oh, screw this. Took out my knife and whoosh, slashed right hey, through the is, boat. Is, isn't that when most mistakes are made, when you're just in like a complete fit of rage? You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yep. Like, cool heads prevail, although like I would have been just as pissed off about that. Um, and I've, I've, I've cut off a few anchors before for the same reason. So if anybody out there gets their anchor stuck, make sure you cut up on your rope <laughs> and not down, please. <laughs> Man, I love Corey. Yeah. Uh, that guy is genuinely one of the best outdoorsmen I know. Yeah. Um, dare I say the best? I respect what you guys are saying, but you're breaking my heart. <laughs> <laughs> you said it. I don't know Corey as well as you do. And he might be the best, like, except for that one time. It's just that one time he wasn't quite the best. Well, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Everybody slips up now and then, sometimes with a large knife. Anyway, uh, a guy like Corey is like bound to have some smooth moves, man. And as far as like our smooth moves go, I think like that's pretty high up there. He's done a. It was pretty smooth in the sense of like you know uh, cause and effect. Like it was like a very clear, clear cut. Pardon the pun. Very good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, (laughs) I like a pun. That dude's done a bunch of really cool shit as a guy. Uh, You know, just. Knowing him as a buddy, you know, he's done a ton of backcountry stuff, a lot of boat stuff, um, including, I'm pretty sure, a bunch of trips on the Madison, which gives us the perfect segue into a very special edition of Fish News. Fish News! That escalated quickly. Very quick bit of housekeeping I have to share. Uh, We got a bunch of notes about our Canadian-themed show last week. (laughs) All very nice. Very nice. Um, but I got I got a message from one listener. <laughs> he says, um, you didn't apologize enough. Like, if you're going to go full Canadian, you have to constantly apologize. Yeah, we're like sorry he says about up that. Here, <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry about that. Yeah. So, like, up here, you hold, he said, you hold the door for somebody and you apologize for doing it. Um, <laughs> so, I got, I got a kick out of that. Anyway, um, here's what's going on. A little bit different spin on on news this week. Uh, Hayden, tell the good people exactly what's going on here. So uh, the fishing world, uh, you know, was kind of in the national headlines for a little bit last week uh, because of some recent events on the Madison River. Mm-hmm. Um, as many of you know, uh, the Madison, there was a dam malfunction. And in short, I mean, we'll get into it more in like the interview, but the water levels dropped precipitously very quickly. And there was genuine concern that this was going to result in some sort of ecological like disaster for the Madison. Now, luckily it was remedied fairly quickly and yeah. the general consensus is this isn't going to be something with a lasting felt impact. Right. Right. That said, uh, we felt as if it was like really important to bring as much light as we could to the issue. Not so much because it ended up being a really horrible and serious thing, but more because there was so much conversation surrounding it. And we wanted to right. kind of give people the the bigger picture of what went on. Yeah, yeah. So I was actually, I was away when this happened. I just got back from three days on the Niagara River. Um, and you know how it is, like, when you're out in the cold all day, you're with your boys, and you get in and just want to go, like, eat, you know, wings mm-hmm. and drink beers. So, like... I, I saw something going on here. I caught a few of the headlines. I saw it in kind of bits and pieces. But then when I finally sat down and read the piece on um, the Meat Eater website by our colleague Sam Lundgren, I mm-hmm. was like, oh, shit. 
right? Now, I know um, a bunch of the Meat Eater team like jumped right into action on, on this and, and went to uh, ground zero, right? Yeah, uh, a bunch of our colleagues were immediately... I was yeah. getting texts left and right, uh, you know, oh, we're going yeah. out, we're going out, do you want to come, you know, and I, I think that really speaks to, it's like a microcosm example of the response that was felt, you know, from all sorts of, you know, different areas. I heard of people coming from as far as South Dakota, you know, yeah. to go help. Yeah. Well, I mean, you have to consider, we're talking about one of the most famous trout waters in the entire country, if yeah. not the world. Oh, yeah. Um, and that this also hits so close to home for you and everyone else out in Bozeman. Um, you know, you had said, I'd like to fire up a special report on this, and I, I was all for that. So uh, who is joining us today? Tell everybody. So today we have Andrew Welch. He is the leader in hydropower license compliance for Northwestern Energy. Yep. And we also have John Way, who is the owner of the Tackle Shop in Ennis, which is the oldest fly shop in Montana. So, right on. Yeah, I, I think we're going to have a uh, a really good conversation, and it's going to bring to light a lot of like, you know, uh, problems that existed before, uh, how we're dealing with this particular problem, and what we're going to do to avoid problems of a similar ilk in the future. Absolutely. So we're gonna we're gonna talk to John and Andy and Phil. I'm not really sure who you're gonna judge with this one, um, but this wouldn't be Ben if we didn't hear from Phil. So uh, when this is all over, Phil surprise us. All right. So today on the show, uh, Joe and I are doing a special edition of Fish News, covering some recent events on the Madison River that made national headlines. Uh, for those of you who don't know, last Tuesday a malfunction at the Hebgen Dam. Uh, caused the water to drop to dangerously low levels on the Madison River. Uh, after the malfunction was discovered, volunteers flocked to the upper Madison and worked to relocate fish stuck in side channels, while crews from Northwest Energy worked, by all accounts, nonstop to restore flows. Uh, after 48 hours, the dam was fixed and the flows were restored. With us today to talk about it, we have two guests, uh, John Way, owner of Montana's Old owner of Montana's oldest fly shop, The Tackle Shop in Ennis, and Andy Welch, uh, leader of Hydropower License Compliance for Northwest Energy. How is it going, guys? How are you? Going great. Good. Happy to be here. Good. Appreciate you guys taking the time to be here so much. This is, this is terrific. Yeah, for real. Um, it, it's something that a lot of folks are deeply concerned about, and it's kind of like a nuanced issue to unpack. And so having like two experts like yourselves is going to be, I think, hugely valuable to clarifying a lot of like the situation. It also makes it feel like we have a grown up podcast. <laughs> <laughs> We're not just grabbing ridiculous news stories. <laughs> All right. So let, let, let's sort of get like right down to it. Uh, Andy, I want to start with you, man. Can you walk us through exactly like what went wrong? Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me this morning. I appreciate it. You bet. Um, so yeah, the the malfunction at the dam was was caused by um, a coupler that uh, broke essentially, and so the shaft that controls the outflow gate at Hebgen um, became in two pieces. Uh, the lower half was attached to the gate, and it fell to a more closed position, reducing the flows to the Madison. And the upper part was still attached to our controls. We lost full control of that outlet gate. And uh, it closed to a more closed position, about a foot, and uh, and reduced flows down to right around 200 CFS in a matter of a few seconds. Yeah, yeah, it was it, it was pretty drastic. And right now, right, this story, um, a lot of it is based on eyewitness accounts. So, John, I, I want to ask you uh, to to give listeners a feel for that. Can can you talk about, a little bit about uh, what you saw in the Madison since you were right there? Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for having me today, guys. Um, sure. My guides and I uh, were up there uh, the day it happened, as well as the second day when the big rescue effort um, came underway. Most of the side channels were dried up to pockets, kind of in the holes in the side channels and kind of along the edges. There was still a main channel um, with that right. most of that 200 CFS mm -hmm. flowing down the main channel, um, but the flow to to those pockets was there. There was no flow to those pockets. Um, in many of the pockets, there were there were fish, sculpins, um, all that kind of trapped in those pockets because the water came down quick enough that they couldn't uh, escape back to the main channel. 
And this was all pretty much um, between the lakes, between Hebgen and Quake Lake. Below Quake Lake, um, conditions uh, came down, I think, more more uh, gradually. And so those fish had time to move. So the, the real uh, stress area, I believe, was between Hebgen and Quake Lake. Sure. Well, just a quick follow-up to that, like in terms of, of, of stressing the fish, right? I, I would imagine that that sort of one thing on the side of all this, on the good side, was that this happened in the winter. I imagine this would have been a much bigger issue had it happened in the middle of the summer, right? Oh, I, 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 absolutely, at least uh, in our, our respect. But the brown trout had just finished spawning, so there were right. reds, all you know, quite a few reds in that upper section um, sure. that, that did get dried out. And so that that's one of the big concerns moving forward. And Andy, I'm sure you saw a similar thing kind of going down there. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Um, you know, it it could have been a lot worse in a lot of different circumstances. You know, the heat of the summer would have been pretty catastrophic for uh, fish and aquatic life there. But also if it would have been a lot colder and we would have had all of these exposed areas freezing up overnight, that can also be much more detrimental than the conditions we saw and so it was actually with the lack of uh, or very short freezing and uh, cooler temperatures, things would have held their moisture for a longer period of time. And, and we, I think we were rather fortunate relative to that. Right. I, I think we can all agree that we did get lucky in that sense. Uh, it, it seems like it seems like a lot of the uh, it seems like the biggest problem in the eyes of a lot of folks was the river falling while operators uh worked on the assumption that it was an instrument glitch um to be like kind of just blunt with it i guess how come somebody just didn't go out and check on it yeah so you know it's it, that's a very complicated question relative to operating a facility like this um what it comes down to having is a you know it's a remote facility we don't have someone there man 24 7 so we have a lot of instrumentation in place to monitor what's going on and uh you know, our the way things are set up, we did not have indication right away that um, there was an actual problem within the dam facility itself. And so we saw the USGS gauge. There's a lot of history with USGS gauges uh, sure. going up and down. And, and, uh, and so one of the first things we did was look to see, do our controls show any change from what we saw yesterday, essentially? And then if no, can we verify this is a real condition on the ground? call USGS, um, you know, have them check their instrumentation um, to see if, if the USGS was real. From that point on, we sent people as fast as we could get them up there to get on yeah. site and get eyes on the ground. Um, we do have cameras at the facility. They're more f- facility-based. And so mm-hmm. those were limited to our value of actually looking at the river conditions down below. And then we started uh, receiving uh, notifications from outside folks that showed pictures and stuff like that, that we were like, okay, this is real. Um, and we, that's when we started our response. So this brings up kind of like an important point. Uh, there are, there are a lot of reports saying that people tried to get in touch with Northwestern for, you know, some folks estimated as, as many as like 12 hours between when this was noticed and when, you know, they actually got through, uh, could, could you speak to that at all? Yeah. You know, it's, that's a really hard question to respond to in the way that who knows where they were calling right. or who they're trying to contact. But, you know, yep, we, we do stop by fly shops um, about quarterly with our, my staff, we leave our contact info. Um, we do have websites for the Madison that, you know, has some contact info. So um, I, I truthfully don't understand who they may have been trying to get a hold of, um, but I'd have to have more information obviously to evaluate what really happened. Yeah, and see, I also think that's a little unfair, right? But one thing you said about the the gauges, that that sort of resonates with me just because not just you guys, but everybody, fishermen in general, put so much stock in, like, you're always looking at gauges on your phone and wind gauges and all these things, and, like, we we, we take that to heart. But in reality, it just goes to show that sometimes those things are wrong. You know what I mean? Like, you need to have eyes on the ground or, or, or even in a fishing scenario where – it says the river's doing this, it might not be. So it, it just sort of, it's like a little, like how reliant we are on, on those kinds of things. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? I, I totally agree. You know, it's it's equipment. It can malfunction. It needs to be adjusted to calibrate it. There, there's all sorts of things with USGS gauges. They do have a good alarm system set up on those. Um, it just happens to be that the Madison River below Hebgen, we have a minimum flow of 100 CFS that's allowed by our license. And so 
we have alarms set, like for me personally, I have a USGS alarm set at that level. We didn't quite drop that low, so that alarm was never triggered. It was the rate of change that was the catastrophic impact, but it wasn't necessarily the full low level of uh, discharge from the facility that would uh, cause us to to be alarmed. Sure. And I, I think another important thing to remember, too, and John, I'm sure you could you could speak to this, but... Um... You know, there's there's so many dams like this all over the country. So many, a lot of fisheries have this here, and um, you know, anglers come to rely on these tailwaters. They're great fishing, um, but you also can't forget that then it it puts sort of humans between you and the wild. Like you have these things, and a lot in a lot of cases, these dams create such great great trout fisheries, but. Um, you know there are people operating those, and it is it is mechanical, and things are going to happen from from time to time. Now, now, real quick before we get there, John's trying to get a word in no, edgewise no. here. <laughs> I, I'm no, sorry. No, no problem, guys. No, um, I, and I, I agree with what you're saying, Joe. You know the Madison is so great because of the dam. We're always kind of really blessed with that clean, cold water that that flows all year. And something you said, Andy, um, the minimum flow required is a hundred. Is there any plan going forward to to bump up those alarms to to maybe two or three hundred CFS so you guys have a better idea or, or more insight um, on, on a quicker basis? Yeah, for sure. Um, I actually already adjusted my water alert for the USGS games, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, there's 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 certain uh, essentially stages associated with the different levels of CFS that we're releasing from Hebgen that. Um, have different impacts on the river there. And, you know, 100 CF, it's 150 CFS is our low. Um, and then 600 CFS at Kirby, which is downstream at Quake Lake. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, there's there's definitely going to be a follow-up on this to look at not just alarms, but everything in the mix on, you know, what we can do to prevent the equipment failure, what we can do to respond in a more uh, quick and controlled manner. There's also going to be um, looks at just impacts, everything you can think of, and all of those will be brought into context and say, okay, what do we do next time that would alert us quicker, be able to have us respond quicker? Um, but for instance, you know, below Hebgen, somewhere around 350 CFS is where that first side channel on the corner right there yep. starts to lose uh, flow. And so we manage it the best we possibly can to not go below that. Um, and uh, the 600 CFS at Kirby and the 1100 CFS all the way downstream at Ennis um, really drive how much water we're releasing from Hebgen. So I, I think it's like important to note that like this story is not as much about an environmental catastrophe as it is a close call. And, and I think the reason that it was a yeah. close call was because delayed or not, once the issue was recognized by you know volunteers and northwestern um the response was you know pretty swift and decisive and you know i think like that like kind of ought to be you know celebrated so john i want to start with you and then i want to go back to you andy uh john can you describe the volunteer response and then andy uh you know the same question to you can you talk about northwestern's response yeah, absolutely. Um, the volunteer response was pretty overwhelming, you know, um, and I believe it was kind of driven by social media. It really kind of shows the power of sure. social media. Uh, every fly shop, every outfitter uh, from West Yellowstone all the way down to Bozeman here uh, put something out that this was this was an issue. There was this rescue effort to try to help save these fish that were trapped. Um Please show up and help, and and uh, the response was was unbelievable. Um, that that I think it was Wednesday. I drove up the valley, and every parking spot had three or four cars in it. You know, with people out yeah. with nets and buckets, and and trying to to save a few fish. And um, it, it really shows the power of of social media. And I, I believe you know within six hours, everybody you know, in the fishing community coast to coast knew what was going on and, sure. and knew what the, uh, the next step would be. And it was pretty overwhelming. Yeah. Yeah. Andy, why do I, why don't you talk a little bit about Northwestern? Yeah. I'll just follow up on that too. It's, I was there Wednesday morning early and, uh, 
met a bunch of the volunteers all in the Madison Foods parking lot and kind of gave an update what was going on. But the response was absolutely humbling um, to, just to see everybody from all over there come into a place and be respectful to the situation and also just trying to be there to help, you know, and, mm. and that was a pretty big deal, I would say. And it was, it was just a, um, it was a kind of an overwhelming experience to see that. And we had a bunch of Northwestern staff there to, to volunteer too, as you know, this is the lifeblood of our lives too. You know, we, we live in Montana for a reason. And uh, we, uh, we actually made a change of plans and, just said, okay, let's let's support the supporters here from a Northwestern perspective. So how about we just go and start distributing refreshments and talk to people? And and it was it was a really great day all in all, considering the uh, circumstances that brought it forward. So, and and I have to say, Andy, I, I give kudos to Northwestern Energy. You know, you guys were were in the parking lot at Madison Foods. I believe the president of the company even came down to Ennis, and and I mean, yeah. he didn't have to do that. You guys didn't have to do that. And even being on this podcast, you guys, I mean, didn't have to. But it, it shows a level of commitment uh, going forward and commitment to the resource. So. I, I appreciate that. It's it's you know we manage these things for you know, benefit of the resource, but we see it as a privilege to generate electricity from the water there too. So those are our kind of level of priorities. And, and I think you'll find that from the top down in the company. John, I got to ask kind of a, kind of a little bit tougher controversial question, right? Cause I feel like this is a, this is, I have to ask this. So what we've seen here in the face of crisis is like this extreme coming together, volunteers, mm-hmm. anglers, everybody out there working for one calls, right? But it's also no secret that, I mean, the Madison has just gained this reputation of being so overcrowded. I mean, it's been in the New York Times, right? I mean, they've run articles about the uptick in traffic on that river and and how insane it's gotten. So do you see this as, at least on a local level, something that come next summer or next spring when the season really kicks back in hardcore? I mean, I think it's fair to say that you you have – Guides out there who make their living, they're pitching in the help, right? That's 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 Absolutely. that's their livelihood. But then you have all these, you know, tourists and locals and all these people who, in another breath, some guides could be like, "Man, these are the people who are clogging up the river and making this place crazy." So, w- what does this do for sort of long term PR on the river? Is 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 this now sort of like, do we go back to the infighting with the crowds, or is this the moment to be like, "Well, look, okay." They bug us. There's a lot of people, whatever it may be. But when it came down to brass tacks, we're all out here helping keep this going. Yeah, that, that's a good question, Joe. And, and something I've thought about as well. You know, you go Fourth of July weekend, and there's 30 boats putting in at Lions Bridge, and and yep. the average tourist or, or Montana resident wants to go float with their family on July Fourth, and and here they are. I understand where that angst comes from, um, and I understand where the the bad vibes to guides are because that's what they see. They see us out there. They see us in the parking lot. They see us on the river and that's all they see. But I hope now they see this as well, where the outreach was from the guide and outfitter community. Yeah. TU came, you know, was was a big part of it and all, you know, everybody pulled together, but a large part of that outreach and a large part of, of those volunteers were from the the guide and outfitter community who, sure. who dropped everything and I mean and ran up there. So I, I hope yeah. this is a great opportunity for the public to uh, gain a little more faith in the uh, the outfitting community. Andy, I, w- I would ask, like, what's what's the lesson here for other fisheries and other places here? Like, what's what's the takeaway? Oh, that's a tough one. You know, the Madison is a unique place um, with sure. the uh, conditions there. It's amazingly. Uh, beautiful free flowing reach between the two dams that just gives it some character. And, and there's a lot of things to balance there from, you know, recreational and outfitted use to, you know, Northwestern making sure we're managing things right. So um, I think the best thing to, to kind of get out there is just, you know, how are we communicating what's getting done out there from all parties and, and that way we can manage it the best we can, um, you know, with so many vested interest in the, the health of the fishery there, it's, it doesn't seem like you could do anything reasonable alone, um, obviously, and that's been shown sure. through the process the last few years. There's there's got to be that equilibrium though that you know that will the resource will support the use and trying to figure out what that is in in this ever changing environment is is uh, something that everybody has to get together on. 
So we're, we're, we're going to wrap it up here in just a second. But before we do, I, I, I kind of wanted to. Yeah, you put out a call for listener questions, didn't you? I, I did. I did. Um, we're kind of going to boil those down into some more succinct questions because basically everybody asked the same shit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, first, um, what would you guys say to folks that are in New York that are reading about this and think the sky is falling. You know, John, what would you say? Andy, what would you say? I think um, we, we, we almost had a catastrophe. I don't think we did. I think, you know, the, the swift action of the volunteers, Northwestern Energy and Fish, Wildlife and Parks all um, prevented a, a pretty big catastrophe from happening. Um, I worry about the uh, long-term biological impacts um, on brown trout, aquatic invertebrates in that, especially in that stretch between the lake. But you got to remember, this is a three to four mile stretch that was really affected. The Madison is 60 miles long. Yeah. Yeah. There, there is yeah. a huge portion of, of that river that, that is not affected. The Madison's still a great place. It's still going to have lots of fish. Um, we're going to learn a few things, I hope. And the sky has not fallen yet. Yep. <laughs> Andy? Yeah, I, I totally agree um, with that perspective. Um, Obviously, going forward, Northwestern is going to do what we can to and analyze exactly what happened at this situation and and come up with some corrective actions that we you know fully intend to implement. Um, but then also, you know, talking about the long term fishery, you know, this this is a challenging one in the way that we don't have good baseline data for fish in this exact reach below Hebgen between Hebgen and Quake, and so we're going to have to come up with some uh, with some ideas with our partners on you know what can be done here to really evaluate the impact because. Undoubtedly, there's going to be an impact, um, you know, but what that is and, and the, the impact in the overall fishery in the long term is, is a whole different question. And so I, I think that, uh, you know, to answer that is, is going to take, you know, some kind of specialized folks putting their heads together to, to figure that out. The positive thing is we, we do have a, a macroinvertebrate sampling spot right down in this reach. And so we'll be able to track that. And we have 20 years of data directly in that area to be able to compare and see, you know, whether or not there's an impact to the bugs, if there is, how long it persists, those sorts of things. So we can get an idea of how, you know, the resiliency of the the river there is is reacting. And then the third piece I will say too is, you know, we we've long standing had a program in, in the Madison to to provide mitigation enhancement measures for the impacts caused by the dams. And it's a perfect uh, framework to, to be able to look at some of this stuff, to um, develop some uh, potential um, projects to, to help out. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a very viable uh, way to, to respond to this once we do understand exactly what the impact may be. And, you know, it's, we've spent a lot of money over the years, you know, about six and a half million since uh, 2000, investing on projects on the Madison. And so that will always continue and hopefully we can, uh, you know, make some meaningful impact that will help out this reach. So, Andy, um, moving forward, is there is there a plan in place right now for increased sampling, increased uh, biological work to, to figure out what effects this might have had? Um, or is there uh, more money set aside for that? Anything like that? Is that in the works at this point? I would say the the discussions have started on how we need to kind of start talking about this. Uh, frankly, we're we're getting our breath right now. Um, Northwestern did a, a full on, <laughs> full court press on this in the forty eight hours that we had with limited flow coming out of Hebgen. I think I slept six hours. Um, <laughs> it was it was a pretty wild situation. I'll I'll, I'll tell you Tuesday night at ten o'clock we had twenty five people on a Zoom call, um, you know, trying to figure out. We had divers, we had engineers, we had our environmental staff. Um, it was it was a uh, full on effort to do the best we could to to get the situation remedied as fast as possible. Now that we have that done, I think we take a quick breath and be very diligent and and purposeful on how we go about trying to figure out what the impact may be, and then respond with some sort of um, action after that. And and I don't want to promise anything right now um, on exactly how that'll look. Um, but obviously there's, there's some follow-up that's needed and Northwestern's committed to doing that. All right, guys. Well, you know, thank you both so much for taking the time to talk with us yeah, today. It, it's so nice to get insight directly from you guys on, on something that so many people are reading about on social media and elsewhere. This has been great. I, I think it's going to clear up a lot of shit for folks. Um, you know, I, I, I think it's going to be a valuable, uh, I think this might be a very, very valuable bit of fish news, Joe. 
I think so too. Perhaps one of our most valuable. Again, it was really it was nice to change it up and not just talk to each other. Have some some people here with some more interesting things to say than just you and I do. So, and real quick, I got to ask Andy: Are you are you a uh, are you an angler yourself? I am. I I do a little mixed bag. Uh, I find myself out on reservoirs a little bit right now with a three year old. She's not quite uh, proficient at wade fishing yet. So, but we're working on it. Quick tip on that. Don't buy the three-year-old waders because by the time she's four, they won't fit anymore. And that's a complete waste. <laughs> I bought them and like she got to wear them once. And then by the next time, it's like, oh shit, these don't even fit you anymore. So yeah. hot well, tip of the week. Thanks. Thanks for that. I always appreciate parenting ticks like that. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks again for coming on, guys. Uh, you know. Appreciate you guys. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having us. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land? Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild, but searching for property can be a maze. That's where land.com comes in. They got millions of listings across the country from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes. Their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want. Land.com isn't just about buying and selling. It's about finding a place to hunt, fish, explore, or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets. So head over to land.com today to turn one day into today because trust me there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth there's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the sunshine state or any other destination on your fishing bucket list book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids with over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. You know, there was a chance for that to get sort of combative, and it didn't. That was a very nice conversation. Both those guys were super on point. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm really glad we did that. Yeah, man, me too. Um, I'm really glad that we kind of took the time to tuck into that because a lot of folks were like pretty freaked out. And I think it's important yeah. that we all kind of come to the table and have a balanced talk about what happened, you know, why the sky didn't exactly fall, but also not forget to really highlight what we just avoided. Yeah. Uh, to be clear, like this really could have been, it, it could have been, catastrophic horrible yes uh as far as i'm concerned uh you know we kind of burned our get out of jail free card if the weather had been different if they couldn't have gotten the dam fixed quickly if it had been a different dam if a whole host of things had happened this could have been just terrible yeah and i think it's also you have to point out that uh as much as i like to take shots at social media right everybody has bad shit to say about social media Prime example of how social media helped this situation very, very quickly. So for all the bad that we say comes from it, here is a great example of some good. And that was a uh, really interesting report. So we're going to hear from Phil, uh, which since he's not judging, perhaps just pontificating, this is like a wrapped present under the tree. It's a surprise, right? 
Um, and speaking of uh, stuff to put under the tree, right after Phil, we're going to hit the sale bin because we've got a one-of-a-kind item just begging to have a giant bow put on it in your driveway. All right, welcome to our inaugural episode of Ask a Three-Year-Old About Fishing. Take me to the river. <laughs> hey, three-year-old, what do you think is cooler, walleye or Wally? Wally. There you have it, folks. Wally, the robot who picks up trash in a post-apocalyptic Earth, cooler and better than Wally. Back to you. Well, why did you put the head in the paper if you don't know what I'm getting at? Well, you, you didn't have to be so hurtful with me, so angry. All right, throw up hands, west side, flash gang symbol, whatever that is, because uh, that's where we're going for this installment of Sailbin. And today's item keeps up with a Sailbin trend, albeit a very subtle one that most people I don't think would pick up on. And what is that? So... I'm fairly certain that every single West Coast sail bin we've done has been for some sort of shelter and or alternative to like a traditional family home. I'm pretty sure. Oh, you know, the uh, the population is exploding in California. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and right. you are also looking in, in like mostly like fishing classifieds and i think that the the people who peruse fishing classifieds are like they're, they're typically a certain level of broke <laughs> <laughs> yeah or trying to live off the grid or evade taxes something like yep. that mm-hmm. yeah no that's true anyway so this is coming from the pacific northwest specifically um and and we've had from the same region we once had a listing for an ice shanty is that, that what they literally call, is that what they call like a meth trailer out there i don't know people from the pacific northwest (laughs) let us know um but it literally it fell off a cliff like the photo in the post was a dude standing at the top of the cliff shooting down on this busted up thing and the post was just like free if you're willing to climb down there and get it so that was one and then there was uh very early on in, in in bent history there was a camper that was turned into a boat and there was one photo of it on like a beautiful sunny afternoon floating with all these 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 young people partying on it. But then the rest of the follow-up shots were just the interior, and you could tell it had been sitting in a yard forever, and it was just like completely covered in mildew and black mold. That's uh, how they were trying to entice you, you know? Ah, uh, man. Uh, that black mold shit is, uh, it, it brings up a memory or two, man, uh, in, in my like- Really? Yeah. In my Bad apartment or what? No, no. When I was a musician, I, I was working at this one recording studio and I could have my own like private writing room. I just had to fix it up. And there was a bunch of black mold in that, which just in case you guys are paranoid like me, black mold is actually not like a neurotoxin. It is something that can trigger like asthma and respiratory shit, but it like long term, it won't hurt you. So all you grunge kids, you know, listening from your party house uh, in the basement, don't worry too much, man. But, you know, do do clean it up. Yeah. I mean, I think it's one of those it's 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 one of it's one of those things like uh, radon in homes. I think people probably worry a little too much about, you know what I'm saying? Um, I don't know anything about radon. This could be horrible advice. Which we put a yeah, well, disclaimer. Yeah. <laughs> well, we should, and this is also why we're not the home improvement podcast. So please mm-hmm. keep that in the consideration. <laughs> I don't listen to this and be like, "See, hun, I don't have to get rid of any of that black mold in the kids' room." <laughs> Joe and Hayden said it's fine. Um, anyway, we're getting way off here. This entry comes from Bent listener Mark Geralami in Portland, Oregon, and he found it on Facebook Marketplace, and it is the exact opposite of a camper turned into a boat. Exact opposite. Uh, yeah, it's a it, it's a boat turned into a camper. And before yeah. we even like dive <laughs> into it, it's legitimately nicer than a couple apartments I've lived in. Dude, I gotta say, mold. man, I gotta I gotta say, unlike the janky ass camper boat, someone put some extreme love and money into the boat camper. Uh, matter of fact, it's so nice that the title of the listing suggests this could also be a tiny house. I, th- I guess tiny houses are still a thing. Oh, uh, yeah. You could just live here. You could just live in it. To let you know, Joe, as long as Pinterest is a thing, tiny houses <laughs> will continue to be a thing. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I'm, I'm curious, man. Oh, Tell me. Man. Sell me on this tiny house. Yeah. So this <laughs> Pinterest. So this thing started its life as a 21-foot sea swirl. And while it doesn't say what year, I'm going to guess by the looks and style. It's late 80s, uh, maybe early 90s. And here's what the description says. This old sea swirl speedboat, which is inaccurate, it's more like an express-style boat, <laughs> has been has been converted into a camper slash tiny home trailer. Brand new living space. It's 21 feet long. Vinyl floors. All new appliances. And he's not kidding. It has like stainless steel fridge in it. Like they're nicer than the appliances in my kitchen right now. Um, In-floor storage. Hot cold water. Both electric and propane heat. Propane stove. Dual tanks. Air conditioning. It's got an air, like a window unit air conditioner. Uh, standard house outlet for power, but also is set up to easily add a battery bank and solar panels to be more off the grid. Plenty of in-floor storage for batteries, water tanks, etc. Standard garden hose attachment for both water line and drain. Designed to easily remove the closet space if you want to add a bathroom. <laughs> you can actually <laughs> see where like whoever built this, you know, chopped the front deck. Yep. Because uh, I'm I'm looking I'm looking at the thing as you're describing it to me. Full disclosure for our listeners, and and most of the console off, and then they've raised it to create more headroom inside. Yeah. Like well, like imagine like creating a gap between the the hull and the deck, and then they yeah it's yeah it's a lot of work. It, it's almost as if they made the walls like taller, and the boat's original windshield is now like a picture window. You know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty brilliant. It's pretty brilliant. And if you can. Picture the notch that would be cut out of uh, a boat transom to accommodate the outboard. The door is just built into that notch. So, like, that's, like, now the space for the full-size walk-up to the door. It's 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 cool. Yeah. What I actually think is most brilliant is that if you were just driving through a neighborhood and saw this backed into a driveway, at a quick glance, it, it just looks like a boat. Totally. So you could probably totally. get away with living in your friend's driveway longer <laughs> because he can just tell the neighbors that, yeah, it's my buddy's boat. Yeah. It's also extremely economical, which is not something that you can often say about boats. <laughs> yeah, no, very much. No, money pits. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Here, here's what the post like continues on to say. Insurance on the trailer is $4 per year. <laughs> $4. <laughs> Yes. It still needs some paint and finishing touches, but it's ready for like whatever customizations you want to throw at it. So he's asking for 1500 no, no I'm sorry, not 1500. It's not that good of a deal. But no. you're going to see it's it's still worth it. $15,000, which honestly I'd hesitate to say is a bad deal. Me too. Particularly when you're talking about housing. Uh yeah. but the very best part is that the disclaimer at the very end in parentheses reads, this is no longer a boat. <laughs> It will not float. There is no motor, no mechanisms. It's a camper, not a boat. No trades. Yeah. No taxi backsies. <laughs> it's a camper, not a boat. I, I kind of love this. I truly do. My, my only hesitation would be that you're still uh, pulling it on what looks like a kind of okay-shaped roller trailer. And, um, I mean, trailers break eventually. Trailers have their own issues. So, um, you know, if it no longer floats... Uh, the only way to swap trailers, if anything happened, would, I guess, would be to find a boatyard with a lift to lift it off there. You can't just, like, dump it off in, the, in a lake for a sec to swap out trailers. Um, and I don't know. I feel like true campers are built on beefier frames than your, your average boat roller trailer. But this is a minor concern, right? Whatever. Bottom line, if I was, like, 22 again and trying to start some crazy YouTube channel, like, imagine touring in this. The comedic value of parking this at the lake, like having a boat you can live in on a yeah. trailer, a big boat, but just like being confined to the parking lot while you shore fish, the comedic value alone is worth it. I think it's fantastic. It's it's pretty funny. It, it, it would be a good shtick. Uh, did you ever see a show back in the day called Gun It with Benny Spies? Oh, man, I, I know Benny Spies because he did some work at Outdoor Life, but I don't remember that show specifically, no. So he used to go around in this camper, and I believe like every time he'd open the door, a bunch of beer cans would fall out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this seems very spies esque to me. Yes, 
Yes, uh, it's, it's I, a, I think the comedic value alone would, in fact, be worth the fifteen grand. It's a great shtick for uh, the right person. Mark, thanks for sending this along. Maybe go grab it, man. Right? I'd uh, I'd say nothing else. It's definitely one of a kind. There are some bent stickers and such now headed to Mark, and if you'd like some of those. Keep an eye on your favorite online classifieds forum and send any weird shit like this that you find to bent at the So Mark is getting some uh, some bent stickers for sending in a sale bin, and so is listener Andrew Jacobs because he is responsible for this week's end of the line segment. All right. This is the one where completely out of nowhere, we're going to go from a shady camper boat to shady strip club. That is correct. That is correct. Right. So, you know, nice. spoons, spoons are pretty great all around lures. Um, but I, but I feel like there, there are so many modern newfangled lures on the market that the spoon is kind of taking a back seat, although it shouldn't, um, especially with ice season ramping up, you're going to get out and do some ice fishing. You should use some spoons. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to close by covering a spoon that everyone has heard of, but you might not know anything about its risque history. Fishy, 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 fishy! Well, that's not loud enough, Bert. The Little Cleo is probably one of the most popular, well-known spoons ever made. It's so popular that it even has its own Wikipedia page. Of course, it also has one of the shortest, most factless write-ups on all of Wikipedia which is odd to me because the Clio has a fascinating story, one that I just recently got tipped off to by listener Andrew Jacobs. Prior to Andrew reaching out, I had no idea this simple lore, enjoyed by anglers of all ages and from all walks of life, was sort of born out of a chance encounter in a nudie bar. The reason I was unaware of this is simple. I just never really fished a ton of Clios. I mean, I never really fished a ton of spoons at all, really, especially in freshwater. In salt, I'd huck a cast master or crippled herring or crocodile spoon all day, but in sweetwater, for no particular reason, I threw Thomas Buoyant spoons for trout and daredevils if I happened to be chasing larger freshwater spoon eaters. This explains why I never knew that for 43 years, every little Cleo spoon had a dancing topless woman stamped on the back. Andrew sent a photo of a vintage Clio featuring said half-naked lady, and I wanted to know more. These days, the little Clio is produced by Acme Tackle, but when they first hit the scene in 1953, they were made by Seneca Tackle Company, which was based in New York City. The company was started by a fella named Charlie Clark, who had already made some money as a songwriter and music publisher. As the story goes, Charlie had visited a hoochie-coochie club, way back in the 1930s, and was smitten by one particular exotic dancer that went by the name, you guessed it, Little Cleo. Years later, when the spoon was developed, Clark decided to name the lore the Little Cleo because according to a story I found in the Oklahoman, he believed the wiggling and dancing of the lore would bewitch the fish, much like Little Cleo's dance had charmed him. The stamped image of the real topless Little Cleo had a good run, It survived into the Acme Tackle era, which bought Seneca Tackle in 1980. She danced into trout, bass, and pike mouths through the Reagan years, kept charming walleyes and stripers while George Bush Sr. held office, and just about made it through Bill Clinton's first term. According to my research, in 1996, a female employee at a major chain retailer saw topless little Cleo and got offended. While I couldn't figure out exactly which retailer that was, it had to be one of the giants, like Walmart or maybe Bass Pro, because in the interest of not losing that retailer's business, Acme took Little Cleo off the Little Cleo, citing that she was, quote, a victim of the politically correct 90s. Andrew, thanks so much for sending the shot of your vintage Cleo and helping me educate myself and our listeners about this classic lore. I want to post your photo on Instagram, but now, 25 years after she made waves, I find myself wondering, do I blur the naughty bits on the back of the spoon? Do I let it ride? I haven't really decided yet, but the bottom line is that, naked lady or not, the little Cleo is likely to keep seductively wiggling its way into fish jaws for decades to come. So 
So that's it for this week. Listen, instead of a recap, we just want to take a minute to bring you guys up to speed on something that's kind of long overdue, right? So for a while now, many of you have been asking for a dedicated listener Q&A segment where we answer your questions on the show. That's right. So starting with the first episode of 2022, Joe and I are going to build in a weekly segment dedicated just to answering your questions. And we're bringing this up now so we can let some questions build in the archives and get this sucker like rolling in the new year. Yes. True story. You guys already send us some really great questions, right? Uh, We get them on on Instagram. They come through bent at themediator.com in the uh, email inbox. And we always try and answer as many as we can. But here's a chance um, for, for some of those answers to help fellow degenerates and, and be heard by the masses instead of just a, a quick typity answer back to you. Mm-hmm. And of course, if we use your question on the show, you'll get stickered. So uh, to that end, fire away. Uh, but in the meantime, we've got eyes on those degenerate angler and bent podcast hashtags, and we're always excited to see the sale bin links, bar nominations, awkward photos, and the news clips that you guys send our way. Yeah, and we'd also be excited to see you patch your raft with only the items available in the piss-poor excuse for a sporting goods section at your local Target. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose Interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today.